0: hello everyone and welcome to history of asia first a heartfelt thank you to anyone who supports this show by posting good comments and ratings on podcast sites the audience is growing at a healthy pace and that's in large part thanks to you guys now before we dive into our story let me start by asking you a strange question to what extent is your life determined by where you were born ever think about that well i do Even if I lived in a next door village, my life would presumably look very different. I would not have met my wife. I'd have other hobbies, different friends that would influence my interests and values in other directions. I guess I would not be talking to you right now. It's the unbearable lightness of being, I suppose. But if I had grown up in Egypt instead of Belgium, I would not even recognize myself. And I'm not talking about hair or skin color. Not only would I be much poorer, I would likely be Muslim, have another occupation, and hold other opinions on very much any subject. Family, honor, love, you name it. And then to think that in this day and age, an Egyptian can get hooked on Game of Thrones just the same as any nerd in Belgium. I don't think there is any question that where you live determines who you are to a large extent. more tricky question, however, is how much of that is actually a direct result of the natural environment. How much of my character would be the result of the fact that the land I'm living on is flat and sandy and has a mild climate? Seems like a pointless question, though. It would be a fool's errand to try to disentangle the effect of geography on me from all the other influences that work on me. And I get the feeling that although there is some influence, no doubt, it will mostly be subtle or indirect. Now, would this also apply to culture, then? because culture is more or less the sum total of all our values, opinions and behaviours combined. Well, fascinatingly, some argue that human culture is mostly determined by geography. I once had an argument with a geographer who believed this. He would say that there is always a geographical reason why a town is here and not 20 miles that way. I gotta say, I was not convinced. If for no other reason than, well, at one time there is a town here, but a hundred years later, or earlier, there isn't. St. Petersburg is now one of Russia's biggest cities, but it was built on a swamp at the expense of thousands of lives. It would probably never have come into existence if it weren't for Peter the Great's idea that his new capital should provide a window on Europe. On the other hand, how can you know such things for certain? We can't. We have no access to a control group. Some Parallel universe in which Peter the Great decides to stay in Europe and become a sailor. We have no way to run that experiment. Nonetheless, I think it's clear too that geography does have an important impact on history. The question is how big? Some see it as the prime mover. Jared Diamond, for instance. In his best selling book Guns, Germs and Steel, he sets out to explain why certain peoples have historically come to dominate others. He argues that this was practically inevitable because in some places geography has been inducive to things like agriculture and commerce, and thereby to innovation and immunity to disease. That's why the conquistadors destroyed the empire of the Aztecs and Incas, not the other way around. Now, Diamond has received ferocious amount of criticism, but I think it's an impressive achievement. Leaving aside how true it is, There's nobility in Diamond's theory, in my view, because it refutes the notion that the advantages that certain peoples enjoy over others would be due to their greater ingenuity, in other words, to their nature or their merit. This is no minor accomplishment, given how prevalent such semi-racist beliefs are, especially among people who've never had a long conversation with someone from, say, Africa or Indonesia. For as Diamond points out, it then quickly becomes plain that there is no difference in intelligence whatsoever. In a way, this is exactly the sort of prejudice that this podcast also tries to combat, albeit from a different angle. Some people have gone even further than Diamond by making grandiose predictions about world politics based on geography alone. Robert Kaplan, the man to whose famous books this episode refers, is a case in point. He and the stratfer consulting firm give strategic advice based on geographical analysis i personally do not believe geography determines the fate of civilizations earth's crust is changing but most of the time this happens not nearly as fast as the people on it it's kind of hard to explain a variable through something that in comparison is practically static europe and north america may have dominated the world for a couple of centuries but this is the exception rather than the rule. In 1500, lands that are now part of the Third World were much stronger than France or Britain. Europe's power is already declining relative to China as we speak, and yet, during all this time, its geography will not have changed in any meaningful way. But that doesn't mean it is of little consequence. In the case of Arabia, the importance of location is obvious to all, if it would not sit atop huge, accessible oil and gas fields, it wouldn't be near as rich as inf- or as influential as it is today. But then again, not that long ago, it really wasn't important. And when the oil age comes to an end, it may well return to obscurity. Apart from oil, there is only one thing which makes Arabia really important, and that is the fact that it's the birthplace of a world religion. As Islam spread through the surrounding lands, Arabia became the center of the world, but this would not last. Soon enough, the center of gravity shifted to the lands where the environment was more advantageous to the building of empires. This means that, except for the high water marks of early Islam and fossil fuels, Arabia was a backwater. Although this illustrates perfectly why geography in itself cannot explain why Arabia is rich right now. No explanation is even imaginable without taking it into account. Today we shall focus on the period when the political center of Islam was moving away from Arabia and its inhabitants. We'll discuss what impact this may have had on their worldview and how this may resonate in the religious sects that dominate it today. Now you may have noticed that we haven't talked much about the difference between Islamic sects up to this point in the show. When something like the war in Yemen is covered in the news media, terms like Sunni and Shia are thrown at you all the time, as if everyone understands what they mean. This is understandable, since these sects are central to the story. You cannot even begin to understand the situation without knowing what they are about. Therefore, it wasn't easy to avoid talking about it up till now. The thing is that to understand this, you have to go back to the period we will be discussing today. The centuries after the Prophet's death. Let's recapture the current religious landscape. In Saudi Arabia, and to a lesser extent in the statelets in the northeast, a strict form of Sunnism is dominant, commonly known as Wahhabism. We have discussed its rise in the previous episode. In Saudi Arabia you can find very different strains of Islam. Along the Yemeni and Omani coastline, most people are Sunnis as well but they are not nearly as strict as the Wahhabis. Instead, they adhere to a more liberal Shafi school. In the Yemeni mountains, the dominant creed is Sadism, a form of Shia Islam that you can hardly find anywhere else. The Houthis of North Yemen are among its adherents. They are allies of Saudi Arabia's great rival, Iran, which is Shia too, but of a very different sort. This explains to a large degree why there is a war going on in Yemen. It's also an important issue in Bahrain, where a Sunni elite rules over a majority of Shiites, who feel discriminated against. This explains why the Arab Spring there was mainly supported by Shiites, and why it was put down with the help of Bahrain's Sunni neighbors. Finally, in Oman, you have a rare form of Islam, which falls outside the Sunni-Shia divide. This sect, which, like Zaydism, is almost unique to Saudi Arabia, is known as Ibadism. The fact that the Ibadis are neither Sunni nor Shia gives Oman a chance to remain on speaking terms with Saudi Arabia as well as with Iran. So each of these sects are, broadly speaking, prominent in one particular environment. And, as we shall see today, they reflect their habitat to a certain degree. Like an animal that thrives in certain conditions, so too with belief systems and anything else, really. If you put a polar bear in the jungle, it will not be able to live long enough to reproduce. Likewise, if you adhere to a religion which teaches that, uh, say, trading is sinful, then good luck trying to convert people whose livelihood depends on selling stuff. Now, I told you I would be honest about my biases. Well, here is one. Please note that this does not imply that all religious convictions are bogus. It merely offers an explanation why some thrive in certain circumstances, while most others have gone extinct over there. One of these um, religions might be right, for all I know, perhaps even one that has no more adherents. That's impossible to prove or to disprove. I'm an agnostic, not an atheist. But I feel like the case of Arabia reinforces this Darwinian theory on the rise and fall of religions. In the rest of the episode, I will try to explain to you why I feel this way. If you have any counter-arguments, I'd love to hear them, as long as you stay polite, of course. But first, I must explain what the difference is between Shiites, Sunnis and Ibadis. To do that, we need to return to the days when Islam was still in its infancy. When the Prophet Muhammad lived in Mecca, the city and its vicinity were dominated by the wealthy Umayyad family, who were part of the same larger tribe as Muhammad himself. This is a name you may, you may want to remember, Umayyads. This family was not particularly pleased with Muhammad's deep preaching, which should not surprise anyone. A new religion is rarely welcomed by the people who prosper in the status quo. When Muhammad lost his protector in Mecca, He was forced to flee to a provincial town far away called Medina. There he successfully mediated an end to a factional dispute. This was a typical way in which leaders gained adherence in Arabia. Muhammad would be accepted as the political and religious leader of Medina. There followed a war with the town of Mecca, which ended with the Meccans opening their gates to him and his fate. After the Umayyads accepted Islam, Muhammad's authority, their network and administrative and political expertise would make them valuable allies. That explains how they managed to maneuver themselves to the very top of the early Muslim hierarchy. This did not sit well however with the people of Medina, some of whom distrusted not only the later converts, but even the Meccans who had followed Muhammad to Medina. After the Prophet's death, This feud would explode over the matter of his succession. He had left no living sons, and it was unclear who should follow in his footsteps. As far as religious authority was concerned, it was clear that no one could. Muhammad had proclaimed that he was the seal of prophets, meaning that no more divine revelations could ever be made by anyone after his death. The Quran was complete to add to it further would be a sacrilege. But what of the political endeavor that the Islamic community had also become? Muhammad had not given any instructions about his political succession either. For some tribes, this meant that the political alliance was now at an end. They had agreed to pay zakat to Muhammad, but now, as far as they were concerned, there was no one left who could lay claim to it. There were even some, proclaimed that the death of Muhammad proved that he was not truly a prophet, and they were now breaking away from Islam altogether. There were even some individuals who tried to emulate the prophet, claiming that they were in fact the new or the true prophets, and that everyone who didn't recognize this would face punishment in this life and the next. must have been quite a disturbing moment for anyone fearful for their immortal soul. In these events, you can also see the ancient local tradition of not accepting permanent authority. Where there are few means of accumulating wealth, as tends to be the case in deserts or barren mountains, social stratification tends to be weak. Every now and then, people flock to a charismatic leader who has proven able to reward those who follow him, often through success in combat, or who could find solutions for disputes through mediation. But if an ad hoc leader dies, His followers often saw little reason why his sons should merit their loyalty as well. They would have to prove themselves first. Up to a point, this applied to Mohammed too. Some will have followed him for the same sorts of reasons why other leaders gained prominence. He was a very successful war leader and mediator. Of course, he was more than that. He was also the messenger of Allah, and this would be key when he eventually died. As was customary, Key members of the community came together in a small gathering. There they agreed that the community of Muslims must not fall apart. So they chose a new political leader, the Caliph, who would be expected to guide them according to the principles laid down by the Prophet. They believed they had the authority to make this decision themselves, without divine intervention, because the Caliph was no saint or prophet. Therefore, his designation would be a purely political matter. Since only a few prominent figures were present at the meeting, it's impossible to know how exactly this decision came about. This leaves room for speculation about the motifs involved, and that divides the Islamic sects to this day. The man who would be chosen was Abu Bakr, a merchant from Mecca, who was among the very first people to accept Islam. His bond with the Prophet was sealed by Muhammad's marriage to his daughter Aisha. According to Sunni tradition, Abu Bakr didn't want the job. He felt unworthy and wanted to refuse, which made him the ideal candidate, because the best ruler is he who doesn't desire power, right? But of course, it's possible to fake this reluctance, especially if you can rest assured that you will then be begged to take up the task anyway. We've seen this before, right? Now. It's very hard to tell whether someone genuinely take the mantle of power out of a sense of responsibility. Please note that I do not take a position on this matter, not only because I cannot know, but also because I don't have a dog in this fight, so I intend to stay as far away from it as I possibly can. To explain the long-term consequences, however, I must mention that many Shiites suspect a sinister plot behind all this. There were multiple elements that aroused their suspicion for one thing what reportedly happened was that abu bakr became caliph because omar another meccan and the main general openly pledged his allegiance to him taking everyone else by surprise abu bakr who was already old for the standards of the day and when he died just a few years later he had named omar his successor but the biggest problem that shiites have with all this is that their own favorite for the caliphate was not even present at the meeting where Abu Bakr would be chosen. This was Ali. Not only was he reportedly the first man who had accepted Islam, he was also the Prophet's nephew. Ali's father had taken care of Muhammad when he was still a boy and protected him when he started preaching. The Prophet later gave his daughter Fatima in marriage to Ali, meaning that his sons would have the Prophet's blood in their veins. Ali also had shown himself very loyal, risking his own life to save the Prophet by laying himself in his bed not to alert his enemies while Muhammad could get to safety. For all these reasons and more, many people felt that Muhammad had in fact made it plain that Ali was his designated successor. There were even rumours about a disputed incident in which the dying Prophet would have asked for writing material so as to give instructions about the succession. According to these rumors, Omar would have intervened, denying this request, because the Prophet would have been ailing and must not be overburdened. And besides, they had the Quran, surely that was all the guidance they needed. Shiites, however, claim that Muhammad was thereby impeded from appointing Ali as his successor. Now, be that as it may, this boded ill for the post-Muhammad future, of course. Then why, you ask, was Ali not present at the meeting where the first Caliph was appointed? Well, he was reportedly in Mohammed's house at the time, mourning the man who had called him his brother, while others were haggling over his rightful inheritance, or so the Shiites might put it. To take advantage of this, they considered this to be in very bad taste at best. At the time, however, the most important matter was that people from Medina witnessed with concern how their former enemies would now usurp the leadership of the growing Muslim empire. This fear grew especially under the third caliph, Uthman. This man, though himself an early follower of the prophet, was part of the Umayyad family. These were people who had only accepted Islam when they risked being defeated by the Muslim armies. More importantly, perhaps, Uthman was accused of favoring his own kin when appointing people to key governing positions in the expanding realm. For instance, his cousin Muawija became governor of Syria. This nepotism provoked loud protest and eventually led to his assassination. Then it was finally Ali's turn to accede to the position of Caliph. But many, and especially the Umayyads, took issue with the fact that he didn't seem interested in bringing Uthman's killers to justice. They also didn't need reminding that many of Ali's supporters had been critical of the murdered Caliph. The feud was given a further twist ...because of the long-simmering animosity between Ali and Aisha, Mohammed's favorite wife, and Abu Bakr's daughter. According to certain traditions, these two had been rivals from early on. For instance, Ali is said to have advised Mohammed to denounce his young wife... ...when there was a malicious gossip doing the rounds that she had been unfaithful to him. Regardless of the truth, such a rumor could of course gravely undermine the honor and hence the credibility of a leader... Allah sprung to Aisha's aid, however, as he revealed her innocence to her husband. Of course, that put the matter to rest. But we can imagine that Aisha would not have taken this lightly. When Muhammad was no longer there to appease them, the rivalry between the two erupted. Those who favored Ali as Caliph would form the Shi'at Ali, the Party of Ali, now better known as the Shi'ites. Now you understand that the religious schism between the most important Muslim sects essentially started off as a purely political discussion. In a way, it still is. For all the talk of a clash of civilizations between the Muslim world and the West, most conflicts in the Middle East are simply between Muslims, and quite often between Sunni and Shiite sects. Then again, this division is only recently coming to the fore again. More specifically, since the 1970s. Then Shiite clerics took over Iran, calling for a revolution of sorts in the rest of the Muslim world. Since then, the Ayatollahs has, have struggled with the Saudis and others over the hegemony of political Islam. Theological differences are used by both parties as tools of propaganda. At the time of the uh, first fitna, or a war between Muslim factions, Theology was probably even less important than it is today. There are plenty of anachronistic interpretations about this ancient conflict, in which it is assumed that the protagonists did what they did for all sorts of complex philosophical reasons. But we must keep in mind, however, that it was only under Caliph Uthman that the assembling of an official version of the Quran began, and few were able to read it. So there were certainly no religious scholars debating matters of theology at the time. It was only after centuries that sects and schools of thought would emerge, building competing ideological systems as they went. Part of this was discussing the proper way to appoint leaders. Scholars would also debate over what really happened in the confusing circumstances after the prophet's death. They argued, and they still argue, over which testimony about these events should be considered trustworthy. For even these accounts were only put to paper long after the facts, and many modern historians see them less as historical accounts than as post-factum interpretations that legitimize certain actions and viewpoints. I suppose most Muslim scholars will disagree with them. According to Sunni tradition, both camps in this struggle basically had good intentions. Aisha merely wanted Uthman's murderers brought to justice, while Ali saw her actions as disobedience. So it's not that Sunnis think that Ali was wrong and Aisha was right. The two camps did try to reconcile, but it seems that when Uthman's murderers understood that a deal might include their punishment, they provoked a fight again. It ended in the iconic battle of the camel, named after the animal on which Aisha sat, while those around her fell like flies. This heroic stance is quite a difference from the typical image of Muslim women having to stay out of politics, of course. That fact was not lost on later Shiite observers, by the way. For them, this confirmed that Aisha was in the wrong. With Aisha defeated, the battle was over, but not the war. For the Umayyad governor of Syria, Muawiyah, still did not accept Ali as Caliph. He was probably wary that Ali would try to dismantle the Umayyad power network put in place under Uthman, starting with himself. Muawijja accused Ali of complicity in Uthman's death. Now, as you may recall, the latter was scorned and killed for appointing his kinsmen to high positions, including his cousin Muawijja. At this point, so it was plain that people had rightly been worried about these contested appointments. Despite the Syrian resources that were at Muawiyah's disposal, it looked as if Ali would gain the upper hand. But again, he agreed to negotiate, perhaps hoping to reunite the Muslim community. Some of his most staunch adherents, however, were infuriated by this. And they ended up murdering the man who they had always claimed was the only true caliph. These were the so-called Karajites. They defended their action by claiming Ali had profaned his divine duty by bargaining over his position. In other words, while the people who had chosen the earlier caliphs were of the opinion that this appointment was a human affair, the Karajites thought it was up to God. Therefore, mortals had no business haggling over it, including the chosen one himself. By doing exactly that, they claimed, Ali had profaned his holy duty which gave them the duty to rebel against him. Is it me, or is there a glaring contradiction in this reasoning? So on the one hand, Ali would be the only true caliph, and not even he himself had any say on the matter. okay? But on the other hand, they somehow had the right to decide that he had lost his position, and even to murder him. I have no doubt a Karajite could enlighten me as to why this is not inconsistent, If there is one in the audience, you can always explain to me by email. I will gladly share it with the other listeners. Other people, however, would suggest that this apparent incoherence can easily be explained not by theoretical subtleties, but simply by self-interest. These caragites, the reasoning goes, were people who foresaw that the arbitration process would result in the loss of their position and perhaps even of their lives, as some of them were suspected of having a hand in Uthman's death. Looked at from this perspective, their motivations look ironically similar to those of their arch-nemesis Muawijja. It's also possible, and this I find more fascinating, to look at all this through the lens of regional rivalries. Muawijja not only represented the Umayyad elite of Mecca, most of all, he had built his own power base in Syria. After his victory against Ali, made inevitable by the death of his rival, he became caliph himself, which meant that the seat of caliphal authority would move to Damascus. You can see at this point power slipping away, not just from Medina, but from the entire Arabian Peninsula. In a way, this had already started under Ali, who had moved his capital to Kufa in Iraq for strategic reasons. But that was just the beginning. Under the first caliphs, Arab forces had taken over a huge territory in the name of the Fate. In these lands, stretching from North Africa all the way up to Central Asia, they had installed themselves as a new elite. But it would not be easy for them to keep that position since they were vastly outnumbered by the locals. What underpinned their position was their religion, their mastery of Arabic, the language of the Quran, and presumably, most of all, their military might. But after a few generations, depending on the region, more and more locals converted to Islam. Some of these, of course, were genuine conversions, but it will also not have hurt that they could thereby escape paying the infidel tax. In a place like Syria, many could already speak Arabic before the Muslim armies arrived. Its use subsequently spread further, as fluency in the language of the rulers became a ticket to social promotion. As a result, today, most Middle Easterners and North North Africans speak Arabic and identify as Arab. Consequently, religion and language were no longer workable criteria for Arab distinction. Finally, and crucially, when it came to military might, the original understanding had been that earlier converts deserved a bigger part of the spoils. But this arrangement too became unworkable. A regular army had to be established, and most recruits came from Syria. It was no coincidence that the Umayyad Caliphate was centered on Damascus. But still, although Syria was much more fertile than Arabia, It was not among the typical centers of power in the region, either. These were found further east, in the Fertile Crescent and Iran. Mesopotamia was not only the economic heart of the Umayyad Empire, it also had the strongest bureaucratic and scholarly tradition, refined since time immemorial. Running an empire that spans multiple continents is quite different from ruling a tribal confederation Experienced administrators were sorely needed, and in Arabia these were hard to come by. This created opportunities for indigenous elites in Mesopotamia who were flexible enough to function under new management. Meanwhile, as more and more lands succumbed to the Muslim armies, the border moved away from Arabia. The key front line shifted to Persian lands. There, the most battle hardened veterans became concentrated. And this, in this position, they could demand a bigger slice of the pie. In 750, the Umayyads were replaced with a new dynasty, the Abbasids. The seat of this new Caliphate shifted towards Baghdad, while the real power center after lay even further east. Little over a century after their glorious conquests, the Arabians had all but lost their privileged position. Like the Arabs who had enrolled in the conquering armies, those who had stayed behind in Arabia had profited from early imperialism as well. Spoils of war found their way into Arabia. But once the Hijaz was no longer the seat of caliphal power, there remained only one reason why it continued to matter. Medina and Mecca remained the main spiritual centers of the empire. There was no changing that. All prayer must be directed toward the Kaaba in Mecca. More consequentially, any Muslim who is able is expected to undertake the Hajj pilgrimage to that city at least once in his lifetime. These travelers brought great riches, while rulers and other rich men continued to shower the cities with generous donations. It was a matter of prestige for Muslim rulers to claim dominion over these holy sites. The influx of riches only exacerbated the rivalry between Mecca and Medina. In Medina, Ali's descendants continued to hold sway while Mecca remained Umayyad territory for a time. Eventually, it came under the control of another line of descendants of the Prophet, the Sharifs. These would eventually lead the Arab revolt against the Ottomans, reclaiming Greater Arabia for the Prophet's descendants. The family would have to content itself with Jordan, however. So for a while, the original Islamic heartland continued to reap the benefits of empire. But by 850, this was all over. Donations faltered. In their faraway capital, the Abbasids, facing urgent problems of their own, lost grip on Arabia and their interest in it. Eventually, they lost control as Muslim power splintered between warring sultanates. This created a power vacuum in Arabia. Uh, These uh, rulers still wanted to be seen as protectors of the pilgrims, but it must be said they often failed miserably. Certain tribes showed no qualms about shedding pilgrim blood or even plundering the holiest of holies, the Kaaba in Mecca. Agriculture declined, nomadism was back on the rise. Now imagine how frustrating this demise must have been for the locals, who still considered themselves, understandably, the rightful leaders of the Muslim world. They had every reason to cherish the memory of the time of the Prophet and the early Caliphs, when Arabia was still the center of the known world. Is it going too far to suggest that perhaps it was no coincidence that in the 18th century, There emerged a movement aiming for a return to those glory days in every aspect of life. From the perspective of religious Darwinism, Arabia must have offered ideal conditions for such a belief system. The decline of Islamic societies at large in relation to Christian Europe would give that nostalgia a boost, but it had been lingering there for a thousand years. After all, when Al-Wahab started his preaching, Europe was still only a faint presence on the horizon. Since we're already giving over to speculation, why don't we take this one step further still? One might say that today we see a similar phenomenon worldwide. For complex reasons that vary from place to place, most Islamic countries and Muslim minorities are in some sort of crisis. This might create fertile ground for neoconservative movements like Salafists, who have indeed gained popularity nearly everywhere. People often point to Gulf oil money to explain that, and rightly so, but just because you spend humongous sums on a mosque, that still doesn't mean people will come. You can plant a million cactuses in a mangrove forest, but they will inevitably wither away. Maybe this is just me succumbing to the temptation to find logic where in reality there is only randomness And of course it's much more nuanced and complicated than this. Still, I think it's an interesting thought. As we saw earlier, the Wahhabis were initially less concerned with western influences than with what they saw as apostasy at home. As Islam spread across a large part of the globe, from the African savannah to the jungles of Southeast Asia, its practices became more diverse as well. When someone accepts a new religion, he cannot toss his cultural background aside, even if he wanted to. Existing traditions continue to linger in some form or another. Regardless of their thoughts on the matter, Muslim rulers knew better than to crack down hard on this. Ruling was hard enough, such as it was. So usually, there emerged some sort of a compromise between old and new, with lots of local variations. But as all these areas started sending pilgrims to the Hijaz, Arabians were constantly confronted with all sorts of religious varieties that they sometimes, understandably, didn't recognize as Islamic at all. Some became influenced by these migrants, but the impact in the other direction was at least as strong. After all, it was the pilgrims who traveled to Arabia in search of spiritual redemption, not the other way round. On arrival, they were almost by definition open to new influences. On top of that, in the early modern period, these visitors often came from areas that were threatened by Europeans, like Sumatra or India. The Wahhabis would not be the first to link these political setbacks to apostasy. Not rarely, Arabian preachers convinced pilgrims of the need to cleanse their own societies of heretical influences, as they saw it. The Hajj, therefore, not only brought heterodox ideas to Arabia, The reverse was also true. Even long before oil or even Wahhabism, pilgrims started preaching about religious purification on their return home. But we will come to that later. This series is about Arabia. There, as I said, some influences from faraway places were introduced, often by pilgrims. Sufis especially found an eager audience. But let's not get ahead of ourselves What is Sufism? This is yet another one of these terms that you hear in the news all the time without much explanation. Here I won't elaborate too much on it either, there will be more appropriate times for that, but I suppose I must provide a little context at least. Sufism is often defined as the mystical form of Islam. In essence, it's about pursuing a direct bond of love with God, or about the most intense way of praying, if you will. One who seeks to focus completely on Allah must not be distracted by earthly matters. The Sufis attempt to attain this state depending on their order through asceticism, meditation, ecstatic singing or dancing or other means. There is a lot of variation within Sufism. Nearly all Sufis, however, accept that they need the guidance of a Sufi master called a peer or sheikh. These uh, sheikhs trace their lineage back to Muhammad through Ali, who fathered the prophet's grandchildren. But it's important to note that this does not mean that Sufism implies Shi'ism. In fact most Sufi orders are Sunni. Some Sufi sheikhs acquired such reputations that places associated with them became shrines where people came to pray. Not infrequently, they were buried at ancient places of worship. This way pre-Islamic customs could take on a new form of life within Islam. There are also certain similarities with Hindu and Buddhist practices, like meditation. Had this not been the case, the faith would almost certainly not have spread nearly as far as it has. It's not a coincidence that Sufism was especially dominant in frontier regions. Now, it is sometimes claimed that Sufism has roots in pre-Islamic beliefs, therefore, And some claim that this implies that they are not true Muslims. Sufis disagree, of course. The fact that there are similarities with what came before, surely, that doesn't matter all that much. After all, no one denies that Islam itself has many similarities with Christianity and Judaism. And no one would claim that this is a mere coincidence. But you don't hear anyone bitching that Muslims are closet Christians or Jews. So I get the feeling this issue is blown out of proportion but I'm just a naive observer so of course my opinion doesn't matter. Perhaps most controversial is the position of the sheikhs and the worship at sacred sites. I read a book by a scholar of Sufism who stated that these Sufi masters, like the prophets, can see signs from Allah in the universe itself. For normal believers cannot do this so they must turn to these people for guidance. Some legalistically minded Muslims see this as idolatry or shirk, which is considered one of the gravest sins. Sufis can argue that this is a grave misunderstanding of the position of the sheikh, who simply helps the believers fulfill their religious duty. As the same scholar explains, if the sharia deals with how the body should and should not behave, then Sufism is about the heart, about the inner faith. Some Arabians did cross that line, however, worshipping ancestors or sacred trees and stones like before the Prophet. The fact that this happened in the birthplace of Islam made it even more upsetting to the likes of al-Wahab. Now, this is pure speculation, but since we're talking about geographical determinism anyway, why not show another hypothetical out there? There may be an environmental reason why Sufism took hold in a place like Arabia. And it has to do with the extreme climate. When people have sublime, or perhaps divine, experiences, this often happens when they are slapped in the face by the sheer enormity of nature, or creation, if you will. Apparently, when confronted with the vastness of the ocean, or of mountain ranges, you can get a feeling that can perhaps best be described as pleasant despair. You get a sense of how insignificant and fragile you are as a human being. Compared to this huge thing around you, whether you call it nature or the universe or signs from God, radical romantics have ventured into the wilderness, putting themselves in harm's way, precisely because they craved such experiences. In Arabia, long before the Prophet and long after, many people have retreated from civilization in search of spiritual redemption. I never set foot in a desert, unfortunately, But I cannot help but think it must be the perfect place to get a sublime experience. It's awe-inspiring, even on television. It's silent, disorienting, and let's not forget, extremely dangerous. A sandstorm may sweep you away and no one ever hears of you again. You can be swallowed whole by quicksand, tread on a scorpion or a snake, or simply get lost and die of thirst. And at night, as if to hammer the message home. You get to experience the full glory of the galaxy. It makes you feel very small. As the famous Sufi poet Rumi would say, the worst idol is your own ego. I guess the confrontation with your own insignificance is the best antidote. Indeed, the humility that sort of experience can engender can be considered to return to the core of Islam. Muhammad himself received his first revelation during a lonely retreat in a mountain cave. This is not the same as seeking signs from God. Sufis don't claim to be prophets, let's be clear about that. But some would point to this as legitimation for seeking God through asceticism or meditation. They also have some Quranic passages which seem to suggest that there are signs in the cosmos for those who care to see. The fact that almsgiving as well as the Ramadan fast, among the five pillars of Islam can also attest to that. Muhammad also showed special concern for the poor. This egalitarianism, if you can call it that, was one of the main reasons why the elite of Mecca had been so bitterly opposed to his teachings at first. Small side note, this can be considered a returning feature in the life cycles of belief systems. Since established religions tend to find the modus vivendi with the elite of their time, The powers that be see new emerging creeds as threatening. The people who a new prophet can appeal to are the poor and the downtrodden. Therefore, most prophets can be regarded as revolutionaries. Jesus said it was easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. At first, this confrontation leads to a violent reaction from the authorities. Many wannabe prophets never live long enough to make enough adherents who keep their memory alive. But those religions that do survive, by craft or happenstance or divine intervention, these in turn become part of the establishment or take it over. But sure enough, there are always those among the most devout who long for the simplicity of the beginning. They retreat in monasteries to follow rules like the rule of Benedict, work and pray, or in the case of Sufis, they put on a woollen cloth. The Umayyads had never shown much enthusiasm for the humility that is so central to Islam. Under their dynasty, the Caliphate became more reminiscent of regular empires. This process continued under their successors. The Abbasid Caliph became a distant figure, shielded from the gaze of simple Muslims. Taxes were raised, and not to help the poor. Some pious Muslims felt that this was akin to forgetting the true nature of the faith, and in reaction they removed their minds and bodies from the affairs of the world. Although they adhered to the Holy Book, they focused especially on nurturing devotion to God in their heart. So in a way, they too felt like um, the people were deviating from the original message of God, something that they had in common with the Wahhabis. However. Aspects of the faith that Sufis saw as legalistic, superficial, and unimportant, Wahhabis regard as the most crucial of them all, and so they are very much opposed to Sufism. Now, ideologies rarely appear out of thin air, and so too with Wahhabism. It evolved out of a Sunni school of thought that had been prevalent in Arabia for quite some time. This again requires some explanation. What do we mean when we talk about Sunni schools? As I said, according to Sunni tradition, the caliph is a political leader. But in Arabia, there was no division between mosque and state. Before Islam, the peninsula was surrounded by empires, but it was basically a stateless society. What prevented people from killing each other was the fear that the victim's tribe would exact revenge. The Prophet would end this, for he forged all Muslims into one community. The laws that would govern these states were religious laws. His successors were no prophets, but they would inevitably have to deal with religious matters. It was not immediately plain how much authority they would have in the matter. As the Caliphate moved to Mesopotamia, it came under the influence of local imperial traditions, in which the rulers often succeeded in dominating religions. The Caliph tried to become the supreme religious authority, but he had to relent. Since then, there is a general consensus that he was a purely political figure with no divinely inspired insight in the holy texts. That is why, in Islam, there is no equivalent to the Pope. But then, who would take on the all-important task of interpretation if not the Caliph? That would be the Ulama. Individuals who made a deep impression with their understanding of the religious, religious texts, they went about teaching their own students as they saw fit. After a while, schools formed around the most influential of these ulama. They recognized each other, for it had become a dogma among Sunnis that division, or fitna, within the Muslim community had to be avoided. To this end, one must also accept the succession of caliphs, as it had historically taken place. In Sunni eyes, Shiites are guilty of fitna, among other things, because they reject the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and in some cases the first caliphs as usurpers. The true successors to Muhammad, according to them, were Ali and his descendants. So by and large, Sunnis believed that different schools should coexist. Then what was the difference between these schools? Sharia, or Islamic law, is based first and foremost on the revealed Quran which is supposed to be the literal word of God. Now, the problem is that the Holy Book does not provide a clear answer to every possible matter at hand. Luckily, it also urges Muslims to emulate the Prophet. And since Muhammad was also a political leader, he had to make quite a few judgment calls during his lifetime. In search of precedent, scholars also look towards testimonies about his acts and statements. Alas, These were put in writing only long after the fact. Therefore, as well as for ideological reasons, there's a lot of discussion about the reliability of various testimonies. For instance, Shiites tend not to hold those accounts in high regard which come from people they see as traitors to Ali's cause. Now, as the situation changed, even these accounts did not always offer clear solutions. After a while, judges started accepting consensus among contemporary scholars as precedent as well but not every school was equally flexible in this regard the difference between sunni schools revolves mainly about what counts as precedent and what does not now accepting the opinions of can- contemporary ulama as a precedent that can open the door to manipulation by the authorities which may partly explain why schools that were flexible regarding the acceptance of precedent were favored by most rulers. As a plus, the more a judge is bound by precedence, the more legal certainty for subjects. That has many advantages, economic and otherwise, as most Muslim empires recognized. There was one school, however, that was diametrically opposed to this view. And the followers of that school are known as the Hanbalis, These scholars accept the precedent only if it was unanimously accepted by the companions of the prophet, and they radically reject any precedent set in their own time. The reasoning goes as follows. Muhammad was the seal of prophets, hence there can be no new revelations. All answers therefore need to come from the Quran and the recorded sayings and acts of the prophet. Now, if certain scholars, who have never seen the Prophet, proclaim that their opinion carries equal authority. They in fact claim semi-prophetic insights. Therefore, the Hanbalis went so far as to regard all other schools as apostates. In doing so, in a sense, they violated a red line of Sunnism, namely that there must not be any schism among Muslims. It's in accordance with that principle that all other Sunni schools acknowledged each other and they were more accepting of the Hambalis than the other way around. But the latter nevertheless placed themselves outside the mainstream. Related to this matter is that you can take too much liberty with interpreting a text. Thereby, you in effect add anew a law of your own, thereby transgressing a sacred boundary. The question becomes then, where these boundaries lie? The safest, or the most simplistic answer perhaps, is to pretend like there is no need for interpretation whatsoever, you just have to stick to the text at hand. But then what do you do when confronted with situations that the Quran, or the recorded acts of the Prophet, don't tackle, at least not unambiguously? There is, unsurprisingly, little guidance in those texts, on whether television or radio should be permitted. There is no law that literally forbids it, but some have nevertheless claimed that TV is akin to making idolatrous images. Radio shows sometimes feature music, which some would argue distracts from prayer. Same thing with whether women can drive a car or men for that matter. All these issues have by the way been actual points of serious controversy in Saudi Arabia. Under King Faisal, as you'll recall, there were protests against the opening of TV stations. King Abdelaziz fell out with his Wahhabi brothers over his fondness of radio. And only very recently, women are allowed to drive. You often hear people mock this whole discussion. Isn't that silly, living in the internet age and still deciding what is permitted or not based on an ancient text? It's important, I think, to be aware that this is not unique to Islam. The American Constitution, for instance, was written by slaveholders who lived centuries ago. Although it is not strictly speaking sacred, it's almost treated as such. Laws that have been approved by majorities of representatives are mercilessly struck down if they are deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And its justices too are divided on how to interpret their sacred text in air quotes. There are those who think that only the original meaning should be taken into account. The late Antonin Scalia was a distinctive specimen of this group. In its obituary of the Justice, The Economist summed up his attitude concerning the Constitution as follows, quote, it meant what it said, unquote. Less conservative colleagues see the document as more of a living thing. For instance, the Second Amendment notoriously proclaims the right to bear arms. Now, this can seem straightforward at first sight, but on closer inspection, it is anything but. Does this mean that any psychopath has the unalienable right to take a super contagious weapon from, uh, I don't know, a lab in Wuhan and carry it into an American football stadium in a plastic bag? Or, at the other end of the spectrum, should we take into account that this text was written in the context of a frontier society, where there was no police capable of providing security? Since these conditions no longer apply, You might then conclude that the right to own weapons is counterproductive to the goal of the law, being to keep people safe. I don't think it's hard to see that both these viewpoints are in a way problematic. How can anyone know what someone's intent was when he wrote something hundreds of years ago? The mind of the other is impenetrable to us, especially if that other lived in a completely different world than we do. The meaning of words changes over time especially when we're talking centuries and some words can have multiple meanings there is a family guy episode in which the founding fathers had put up a pair of bear arms on their wall they liked it so much that they decided to put the right to bear arms into the constitution it means what it says right on the other hand by what authority and by what method can someone determine what new meaning a phrase should get if it is taken out of context entirely. As critiques of this approach rightly point out, that leaves the whole process open to cherry-picking. It's not a coincidence that judges with a conservative viewpoint on concrete issues tend to be so-called originalists, like Scalia. But then, what's the point in having a constitution in the first place? Considering this, it becomes harder to dismiss the disputes between Islamic judges. One man interprets the meaning of the word idol. The other ponders the meaning of the word arms. But there is a difference, of course. Antonin Scalia got along famously with his most liberal colleague, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, But when discussing religious texts, instead of laws of men, the discussion becomes so much more bitter. Taking too much liberty with the word of God, that is, in the eyes of some, Nothing short of blasphemy. Hard to stay friends after a slur of that magnitude. As I said, Hambali's were quite marginal in the Muslim world, but not in Arabia. I suppose their focus on the time of the Prophet must have appealed to a people who remembered that era with melancholy, and for more than religious reasons alone. Also, the Hijaz remained a center of faith in its own right, by virtue of its holy cities so perhaps the local ulama could be expected to want to remain unbound by a judicial consensus that was fostered around the seat of imperial power. Al-Wahhab embraced Hanbali ideas and took them a step further. By then, other schools were paying the price for the demise of the powers that supported them. Thanks to their alliance with the Saudi royal family, the Wahhabis acquired a lasting dominance over the courts. As a consequence, Judges in Saudi Arabia have broad leeway in their judgments. They are not bound by precedent. This leads to unpredictability and legal uncertainty, which is probably not appealing to investors. This might well be a serious economic handicap for the kingdom as it tries to diversify its economy. This unwillingness to accept religious authority was also a reflection of Arabian political culture. The sheikhs could hardly expect blind obedience from their tribesmen, Now, In theory, Islam had superseded tribal rivalries, but in reality, it often added an ideological layer on top. Just consider the feuds between the Umayyads and their enemies. After Muhammad's death, the claims of Caliph Abu Bakr were questioned on all sorts of grounds, as tribes tried to go it alone again. There were many of these in Oman and Yemen. Abu Bakr managed to call those apostates to order, but the tendency to keep a distance from the center remained intact. As Islam encapsulated itself in people's minds and institutions, breaking away from it would no longer be an option. So later secessionists found legitimation within Islam. In the 9th century, Shiites and Karajites had given up on their efforts to claim the Caliphate. Those close to the imperial heartland tended to retreat from politics altogether. Those that did not want to relinquish their positions of power often chose to defect to the Sunni camp, like the Sharifs of Mecca. In remote areas, however, there was another option available to them. There, Shiites and Karajites supported breakaway movements, or you might say that conversely, separatists invoked sectarian ideologies to explain their political actions. The Zaydis of Yemen and the Ibadis of Oman are both spiritual heirs to the Karajites. The Ibadis are even a direct offshoot of this sect. As I explained, Sunnis have a taboo against Fitna, implying that they had to obey their rulers even if they were unjust ones. Karajites, by contrast, believe that an unvirtuous leader forfeits his right to rule. Zaydis, as Shiites, believe that their leadership of the faith belongs to a descendant of the Prophet, but unlike other Shiite sects, they don't see the line of succession as fixed. On the contrary, they regard rebellion against untrustworthy rulers as a religious duty. According to his followers, Zayd ibn Ali, after whom the sect is named, was entitled to the imamate precisely because he was the kinsman of Muhammad who stood up against the corrupt regime in Damascus. Ibadism goes even further down that path. It disapproves of automatic succession, no matter how noble the heir. Instead of relying on rebellion against unjust leaders, it institutionalizes limits to their power. In principle, at least, the Ibadi Imam is chosen by tribal and religious leaders. He has to heed their counsel and can be displaced by them. It's not hard to see why this might be popular with sheikhs who are unwilling to relinquish their autonomy to a higher authority. According to the logic of religious Darwinism, belief systems that thrive in a certain location need not have sprung into being there. They are the ones best adapted to the shifting circumstances. Sometimes, an imported species turns out to have no natural enemies in a certain ecosystem. Today, Zaydism and Ibadism are prominent in Yemen and Oman respectively, but they didn't originate there, Zaydis put down roots in Yemen after a leader of this sect was invited there to settle a tribal dispute, a common way for sheikhs to gain prestige and adherence. Ibadism didn't originate in Oman either. Little is known of its founder, some consider him a mythical figure like King Arthur, but there is a saying about Ibadism. The egg was laid in Medina, it hatched in Basra, and then the bird flew to Oman, where it stayed. The Zaydi and Ibadi sects always kept open the option of disobedience, so they were tailor-made for southern Arabians who expected little benefit from the empire centered around Iraq. For most of history, the interior of Arabia was left virtually untouched due to the combination of distance and relative poverty. Some coastal areas, on the other hand, lay on busy trade routes which brought them prosperity, but it also made them tempting targets. For example, in the previous episode, we saw that coastal Oman subsequently fell into the hands of the Portuguese and the Persians. However, the threat often didn't come from overseas. Not unlike the modern Gulf states, these were small, rich settlements surrounding, surrounded by poor warlike neighbors. The coast of Yemen was often invaded and dominated by tribes from the, from the interior. If you take a look, look at the long-term history of Yemen, It's striking how often this same model returns, whereby the mountain tribes supply the political elite, while the south bears a disproportionate part of the tax burden. The Yemen that Abdullah Saleh unified in the 90s was a variation on this model, as was the regime of Imam Yahya, who took over from the retreating Ottomans. Such unification often started off as outright plunder. Where did this returning pattern come from? Well, the hill tribes produced little of value themselves, but they took pride in their martial prowess. Arms are still regarded as a sign of masculinity by Yemeni tribesmen. Many keep their iconic curved daggers girded at all times, and even more lethal weapons are worn in public too. This became common in the South too, but only since recent civil wars. In the Saudi heartland, iconic sword dances had a similar function, symbolizing the readiness to fight for one's honor. The returning domination of the coast by inland tribes is not entirely due to culture or fighting spirit, however. North Yemen simply has more people. It's easy to defend. The chieftains built their fortresses high in the mountains, inaccessible to siege engines and ideal for an ambush. While the northerners could escape foreign domination by retreating there and using their fighting skills and knowledge of the terrain, southerners could escape by sea, which they often did. When times were bad, Yemenis and Omanis have often left their homeland to try and make their fortune abroad. They had another means of defending themselves though, namely, with the help of outside powers. Invaders from overseas, such as the British and the Ottomans, often had more military assets and they were able to protect the lowlands against the mountain tribes. Perhaps many in South Yemen still hope that this role might now be filled by the UAE. Since these foreigners tended to adhere to liberal Sunni schools like Shafiism, this became embedded on the Yemeni coast. There were other reasons why the South Arabian coast is mostly Sunni to this day. Many Yemenis and Omanis traveled to other Muslim lands, and in most of these, Sunnism was the creed of the land. Many of their trading partners were Sunni too. So while the tribes of the interior made political hay from adopting deviant or defiant sects, The opposite was true for the coast, who had an interest in tolerance and in staying on good terms with major powers who might come to their aid someday. We saw examples of this earlier, although we didn't cast them in this particular light. You will recall that people from places like Muscat and Jeddah were unhappy with Wahhabis trying to force their intolerant creed upon them. Inversely, such religious differences provided propaganda opportunities for the forces of the interior too when they want to plunder or overtake prosperous trading settlements. For instance, the heavy taxation of the Yemeni South has been explained as an infidel tax. The plundering of Shia regions in East Arabia and Iraq by Wahhabis was presented as a holy war. And yet, these religious differences are rarely the first cause of conflict. After centuries of contact in Yemen, Zaydism has grown so close to Shafi Sunnism that it is sometimes referred to as the fifth school of Sunnism. The dogmatic differences between them are incomparably less significant than between, say, Wahhabism and the Shiite sect that dominates in Iran. This attests to the fact that Yemenis can be just as pragmatic as Omanis, and why not? Until the 1970s, Yemeni Sunnis and Shiites used to pray side by side in the same mosques, It was only with the rise of political Islam and the Cold War between Iran and Saudi Arabia that sectarian relations became more hostile. But sectarianism in Yemen has rarely been a reason for fighting in the first place. Rather, it offers an excuse for fighting over more profane matters like money or influence. The Houthi insurrection is a case in point, I think. So it is not that religion has led to the division of Yemen far from it but the opposite might be partly true for Oman. Ibadis accentuate equality even more than other Islamic sects. And this may have helped smoothen the differences between tribesmen and other Omanis after the country was unified by the Imam. The ideas behind Ibadism are also much less warlike than those of Zaydism. The latter, as you'll recall, praises rebellion against tyranny. The Ibadis, by contrast, split off from the other Karagites, precisely because they opted for reconciliation with rival sects. They even embraced the idea that sectarian differences must never be solved by bloodshed, which could not be further from the original Karagite attitude. This conciliatory focus fitted Omani customs and interests. The sea trade had always been in the Omani's blood. It's telling that Sindbad the sailor, you know from the epic tales of a thousand and one nights he came from the omani town of sohar these trading communities didn't want matters of fate getting in the way of a good business opportunity a sect that stressed tolerance and deal making was just what the doctor ordered one might also argue that reversely ibadism would strengthen the culture of compromise in following centuries the election of the imam provides a means of sharing power now This is not a transparent democratic process or anything. The procedures are kept vague on purpose and practices vary. But what usually happened was that before the election of a new imam, tribal and religious leaders had to be consulted. The ruler himself could also let his choice become known, either before his death or through a written will. Even afterwards, the imam was not supposed to rule in a dictatorial manner. He must consult with his advisers, as Mohammed himself had done. The election of an imam, as well as later government decisions, are supposed to be made by consensus, a bit like the program of a democratic coalition government. The current Omani government system embraces these principles too. Well, in principle, for I can't help but find it ironic that a country that presumably elects its leader is home to one of the longest ruling dynasties on the globe. To understand how this came to be, we must look at the history of Oman. For most of history, the Omani coast and interior were not unified politically. The fateful unification happened as a result of the expulsion of the Portuguese by the Imam from the interior. This victory against a common foe created the momentum for the unification of the two spheres. Interests of leading tribesmen became intertwined with those of rich merchants but the imamate also started to take over customs of coastal government. It began to function essentially as a common sultanate, as the position of the ruler became hereditary. This was not welcomed by everyone, as you can imagine, and this led to a bloody feud very quickly. It ended when one of the factions asked the Persians for help, who came as occupiers but were then expelled by the founder of the current dynasty. You heard the story in the previous episode but the same tendency toward hereditary rule would persist. From time to time, the conflict over this principle would resurface in different guises. For instance, in the late 1800s, a new imamate movement in the interior rose up to protest against British influence. After World War I, the Sultan and the Omanis made a secret pact known as the Seep Agreement, in which both sides agreed to stay out of each other's business. Sultan bin Taimur, the one who would be set aside by his son Qaboos you may rem- remember, he held the telling title Sultan of Muscat and Oman, in fact acknowledging that these were two different countries. That was in 1932, ironically, that very same year, the first time Arabian oil was struck and Abdelaziz ibn Saud would found his kingdom. Ironically, These events would eventually lead to the reunification of Oman, and so to the undoing of the uneasy agreement. For with the Saudis also came the influence of American oil companies, who competed with British ones for control of the Arabian oil fields. It was soon suspected that in Oman this would be found in the interior, which was under the imamate's control. But the borders were vague and the imam resisted requests for British exploration. So the British decided that Muscat should take direct control of the area so as to allow the work to proceed before the Americans got there first. History is full of ironies. While the Sultan depended on British aid to take over the interior, this very dependence became a rallying cry for the Imam to denounce him as the puppet of unbelievers. Given this dilemma, Sultan Sa'id bin Taimur's fear of innovation, for which he has often been mocked, may not have been... All that short sighted after all. He was able to defeat the Imamate's forces with British aid while appeasing the conservative folks of the interior. No small feat. Oman remained a Sultanate, but many Ibadi practices are in place to this day. Sultan Qaboos is an Ibadi, and his successor was elected according to Ibadi custom, in a way. Imported sheikhs from the interior continue to be co opted, they have their say in government ministerial posts are not packed with royals um, to the same extent as in other gulf states, which might perhaps even provide for more effective government. Now, Sultan Bin Taymour's reluctance to innovate may have worked to appease the interior of Oman, but in Dofar it backfired and led to insurrection. We shortly touched upon this uh, conflict in previous episodes, but now I want to expand a little further on it. And that's because this story illustrates nicely just how recent Oman's position as an everyman's friend really is, and that it would be a mistake to think that religion is the most important factor in this. I said before that the fact that Ibadism is neither Shiite nor Sunni may have given the Omani sultan a chance to stay out of the ideological war between these two camps. We also pointed to the difference in temperament between the isolationist Said bin Taimur and his son, who opened the country up. This is all significant, but it is not the whole story. The fact that Bin Taimur didn't have good relations with his neighbors was not wholly his own, his own fault. His neighbors had their own plans with his land, Iran, the Saudis, and especially communist South Yemen. That last one had its eyes set on Dofar, a small region on the border between Yemen and Oman that is unique in many respects. Unlike the rest of the peninsula, its climate is affected by the monsoon. Inhabitants spoke non-Arabic languages, and culture was pretty distinct as well. This is not so surprising, since it is separated from the rest of Oman by a desert. It had not been integrated in Oman at all. This also meant that there were few personal ties with Muscat, and therefore the Sultan reckoned that his methods of co-option would not work in Dothar like they had in the lands of the Imamate. Instead, he tried to impose direct control over Dothar. It didn't work as foreign powers supported the rebels, or freedom fighters depending on your viewpoint. The Sultan's failure to end this rebellion offered his son Qaboos a reason to depose him, and the new ruler managed to suppress it remarkably swiftly. How did he manage to pull this off? Well, you wouldn't be the first to ask that. It's often used as a textbook example of how to perform an effective counterinsurgency campaign. Very generally speaking, it was a mixture of military force with efforts to win hearts and minds. However, I doubt whether it can be easily copied elsewhere, and here is why. Right when caboose came to power, oil income started to increase in earnest, and a very big chunk of the suddenly swelling mud budget was used for development in doffar, like wells and hospitals. So the Omani state now became a source of wealth instead of an extractor of riches. At least for those who pledged loyalty to the sultan. That is kind of hard to copy in a poor state like Yemen. Another important game-changer was winning over the former backers of the rebels, like Saudi Arabia and communist South Yemen. Qaboos even managed to get military support from the Iranian Shah, In the past, the international dimension of the conflict had worked to Oman's disadvantage. Now the opposite happens. This, you might say, was the crowning achievement of the consensual approach that befitted Oman. After all, a man without friends is a man without power. But it takes two to be friends. Why did these neighbors suddenly become so friendly towards Oman? That too has to do with oil. Oman covers one side of the Strait of Hormuz, the narrow passageway between the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean. For most members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, this was the only route to the open sea. At some point, over 40% of sea-traded oil passed through this narrow corridor. Oman acts as its gatekeeper, together with Iran, which controls the other side of the strait. Now, being the pariah that it is, You might think that Tehran would be tempted to block the access now and then, so as to apply pressure. But in reality it avoids this like the plague, since the lion's share of its own trade passes through the strait as well. So despite their differences, all major players in the region now have an important stake in Oman's stability, as do countless overseas nations that rely on Gulf oil. This goes a long way explaining why Muscat has been able to stay out of most rational power struggles since. But as always, the picture remains incomplete. For just because a certain policy is in the international interest, that does not mean such a policy will necessarily be pursued. People make mistakes all the time. Maybe choosing this course was partly due to a culture that Ibadism helped foster. And as we saw. Maybe the fact that this religion took root in Oman was in turn thanks to its particular environment. It's the story of the chicken and the Ibadi egg. Time to wrap things up. Today I have attempted to explain the religious landscape of Arabia through a lens of geography and rational choice. Certain religions were adopted because it fitted interests and cultures of locals, which were in turn determined by their environment. Orman borders a strategic sea lane that offers opportunities for trade, but trade and intolerance don't mix. Abracadabra, a tolerant creed is adopted, intolerant ones die on the vine. I'm not going to lie, I find this a tempting approach because it seems to provide so much clarity. But we have to be honest, this is a mirage. Religion has a life of its own. Individuals can choose to accept or reject them. And this is not so much a choice based on narrow self-interest. It's way more murky and complicated than that. And as I want already in the intro to this episode, the impact of certain environmental factors depends on other things, which change over time. One moment, Muscat was an ideal position uh, as a trading hub. Next thing you know, the Suez Canal opens up and it's left out of the action by the British. In short, Geography provides some answers, but it's far from the whole story. That is the problem with Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs and Steel, in my humble opinion. The man offers some brilliant insights. It's just that he presents them as if they solve the whole puzzle. This gives the false impression that actual people don't have agency at all. And hence, critics have argued that this absolves colonizers and the like, for it presents their acts as inevitable. I think this is way too harsh. Explaining why the Spanish could conquer the Aztec Empire is not the same as saying that they were right to do so. Just because you can, doesn't mean you must. Diamond might have avoided this harsh criticism, perhaps, if he had been a wee bit more humble. But then, perhaps, his work would not have attracted the attention that it did. In fact, I struggle with this dilemma myself all the time. On the one hand, I want to give you clear explanations for the world we live in. I want to find them myself too, but on the other, I have to acknowledge that there is no such thing as a prime mover like geography. There are many ways of looking at history, all of them flawed, but some are more flawed than others, and I still think that overemphasizing geography a bit, that's far from the worst thinkable viewpoint. But tell you what, in the next episode, I'll follow a completely different approach. Equally valid, equally flawed. Can't wait. Until then, bye.